just a few days ago was a very important event in the world of sport. The Eaton Wall game played on Ascension Day. So in this episode, we're going to discuss in fall if anyone ever actually scored, which of the players is most likely to become prime minister, and why we think of this as a classy country. So all that and more coming up on Americans Watching the Eaton Wall Game. Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. This is Buddy Franklin. This is the greatest showman. Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. From inside the centre square. You know, when I first watched Buddy, I was fascinated that it's an actual sport in terms of like, wow, this is amazing. The Eaton Wall game is probably the exact opposite, considering that in the most important game of the year on St. Andrew's Day in November, no one has scored a goal since 1909. Not because no one scored. Look, scoring plays aren't always exciting. Like a one-yard touchdown, unless it's fourth and goal, is boring as shit. Unless it's Jamal Williams, because he's fucking awesome. Here's, here's my thing. I'm amazed in the opposite way like i'm amazed that people have actually been doing this for hundreds of years and they keep doing it because some people did it a long time ago like the british empire would have been taken down so much sooner if any country that wanted to revolt just gave like the british soldiers that were there a ball and a brick wall to push up against and i think we would have probably like kicked their asses in the war of 1812 instead of calling it a draw if not a slight defeat I would call it a slight defeat because the most important American victory occurred after the treaty was signed. I mean, news did travel slower back then, but like, that Americans look at British culture as this refined thing when their idea of a great sport at their most prestigious school that keeps producing the prime minister is a bunch of guys pushing up against a wall and scraping their elbows. That really puts it into perspective. Australia does it better. And on that note, this is episode 99 of Americans Watching the Footy. That's Ethan Castle. I'm Benjamin Castle. Hello from South San Francisco, California, where we most certainly do not play the Eaton Wall game. So yes, the like second biggest Eaton Wall game of the year was like this past week. So it's kind of like the halfway point-ish. So I, I wanted to include it because I thought of the Eaton Wall game a few months ago and Put it in our notes, it probably would have been better if we had, like, previewed it in our round 10 preview, but whatever, we we managed to squeeze it in. It happened. It's done. It's a stupid thing. More importantly, what a start to the Sir Doug Nichols rounds. Drama on each of the three days of footy in different ways. Three games that were not decided until the final siren. No after the siren goal, but some very close to the siren goals and chances and... A dramatic finish that's kind of unique in its own right. A couple other, one other pretty compelling close game, and then a couple blowouts that we were able to take a lot away from. The week started on a rough note, though, in a couple ways. Actually, you know, the the Tasmania deal being on thin ice is something that had started to come up earlier last week, but the government is now in minority, and the opposition are against the new stadium, so it's just something that 
we're going to need to track whether or not the stadium will go through. There's been more information published about the stadium deal by Jeremy Rockcliffe's government in the past few weeks, and hopefully this gets done. You know, we're not experts in any way on Australian politics and Tasmanian politics even more so, but something we need to watch out for. Canberra for Team 20. Also, Alistair Clarkson has taken in indefinite leave from North Melbourne for mental and emotional reasons. The club state inside of the fallout from the Hawthorne investigation and, and all having taking a toll on him. Brett Ratton is now the caretaker coach. It's his third time as caretaker coach at three different clubs, Carlton, St. Kilda, and now North. Also last year, he missed a game for COVID and they had a caretaker coach, right? Yeah, Brendan Laid was the caretaker coach and he's now an assistant with the Bulldogs. But the fact that the Hawthorne investigation was specifically mentioned seems very targeted by Clarkson and the club. And listening to some of the Fox footy commentary this week, stuff that was being discussed in between the halves, I remember John Ralph specifically saying that there's unlikely to be penalties issued by the AFL relating to draft pick sanctions, but they could face, but Hawthorne could face some civil cases over the matter, potentially something from the Human Rights Commission. It's been a very drawn out investigation with a lot of doubt cast over it and Really, no voices seem to have been heard adequately, including those of the accusers. And for it to come up during this time in the AFL season seems particularly poignant. You know, I had wondered at the start of the year, how will Clarkson handle coaching a losing team when he hasn't really had to do a ton of that? I still don't think this like necessarily reflects on that because we don't know. We don't know if this has anything to do with the fact that the team sucks. I mean, look, it's less fun to go and coach a losing team. That's kind of kind of obvious, and it, it can wear on you. So I don't know what the factors are. If anyone knows Clarkson does, and hey, there's a chance he doesn't even know because sometimes people just, you know, you don't like break down, why am I feeling shitty? And it's just, I feel shitty. I need to get away from this. But this is far from the end of the story is the point, right? I, I guess. Also, it's just, it's an interesting and unexpected hurdle for North Melbourne, who have had a whole lot of hurdles. This just kind of adds to it. We'll talk more about North's game this week shortly, because they were the first to bounce on Saturday. But how about the Friday night, our first off? Yarna Pulte, 11-14-80, defeating Narm, 11-10-76. Or Port Adelaide defeating Melbourne. Really good game. I had said... Going into this one, I would almost certainly be very impressed by whoever won this game. And we're both impressed by Port Adelaide, specifically one Zach Butters for taking the game over. Yeah, it wasn't just him, but he was the best player against, you know, in a game full of good midfielders. You've got Ollie Wines, you've got Christian Petraka, you've got Clayton Oliver, you've got Travis Boak until he got subbed out injured. And Butters was far and away the best midfielder in this game. And while it was his night, I think this was really a total team win for Port Adelaide, who did a really good job rebounding after a crappy third quarter where they got outscored 42 to 19. They came back and won the fourth quarter 24 to 9. But I want to talk about the most important thing about this game. Angus Brayshaw started the game without his helmet and then put it on very quickly. Had it on after the first two goals. So... That's the greatest mystery here, and I'm disappointed that we don't have more discussion of this. I'm wondering if maybe it got damaged or like the strap broke during warm-ups and it had to get fixed, because 
that's the first time we've ever seen him in-game without it. And it felt very weird. I was looking at the balance wondering, wait, who in the world is that? Wait a minute, that's Angus Brayshaw? And Brayshaw's been an interesting player to watch as of late because Christian Salem being back in means that Brayshaw has been playing a bit more forward, been attending more center bounces, and Petrock has also been starting in the forward 50. So those matchups were points of interest early on, but it was a really smart game plan from the power from the beginning. They were really taking a ground-based approach to contests into midfield. They weren't letting Melbourne mark really anything anywhere. They were also holding their forward six so the Ds didn't have numbers in the back third. And that's been the clearest way to neutralize them considering what they have in terms of defensive marking, not just Stephen May and Jake Lever, but certainly starting from those two. Last year, I was especially critical of Ken Hinckley as a coach. I'm starting to think maybe he's one of those guys who just, you know, not a great in-game adjuster, but knows how to put a good game plan together. And I think, I think they had lost a couple of assistants heading into last year. Just obviously luck in close games isn't sustainable as we've seen time and time again. Weren't they 7-0 or something in 2021 close games and then... I don't know, they were bad in close games last year, and this year they're 4-0 in games decided by seven or fewer. So, kind of just illustrates that point further. And we'll talk more about Zach Butter's game, but I've always been taking his big possession numbers and matchup wins as a given at this point. People need to start doing the same for Willem Drew because he didn't have a full-on tag in this one, but he was consistently beating Jack Viney at center bounces, and... With Oliver a little bit hampered and potentially being out for a bit with a hamstring injury, Viney is a really important player in those contests, and Drew was able to not just take him out of it, but gain possessions himself. We both caught on to Will and Drew being one of the biggest risers for Port over these past years, and I in particular have been championing his cause. Speaking of Clayton Oliver, by the way, he was called for three throws in the first half. I think that's just something the umpires were told to look at across the league this week, because we saw more throws being called in general. Overall, that's one of the few areas where I've actually been okay with umpiring as of late. They seem to be much more willing to call high tackles this round than they were last round, where at times, like especially in that Collingwood GWS game, you could just grab someone around the net. I believe one of our nominees for main character last round is whatever the hell a high tackle is. Anyway, as for the kind of ebb and flow of this game, Port actually got the first goal the second half from Ollie Lord. They got up by 20, so that was 43-23. to Then went 49-30 to after Butter's goal off of a Lockie Hunter turnover. One of the few negative plays I've noticed out of Lockie Hunter at all, who has really settled in nicely with the Demons. I think Lockie Hunter's year so far needs to be like appreciated more when you consider what he's been through. Like, there have been some great personal redemption stories. Bobby Hill, one of those, but Lockie Hunters should be mentioned a bit more. Hunter may be missing next week, though. He was suspended the game for a front-on contact against Connor Rosie. That occurred right near the end of the third quarter after Brody Grundy put the margin back out to 17 points. We also had a suspension that occurred from an incident in the middle of the fourth quarter. And this is one of the most controversial calls and plays of the round as a result because of how important this was. So Tom McDonald was called for holding the ball against Tom Jonas when Jonas got him above the shoulder. So high contact probably should have been called even though McDonald ducked his head. Jonas was suspended a game for that and has pled guilty to that charge. But it was off of that holding the ball call that Port Adelaide 
managed to take the lead. So Port Adelaide's 20-point lead in the third quarter all of a sudden turned into a 17-point deficit. Melbourne went on a 31-0 run, and the third goal off that run, what a shock, it came from Kazi Pickett. It's something I've said a thousand times. Whenever he gets a goal, it just sparks the entire team. And that was once again the case here. Other things that happened in that stretch included Travis Boak getting subbed off for a rib injury. Jackson Mead was the sub for Port Adelaide. Charlie Spargo had a nice goal to put the D's in front. Then Hunter scored after Mead dropped a kick as the rain was picking up. By the way, it never just drizzles in Adelaide. It is either completely dry or it's just fucking dumping with absolutely no in-between. Uh... Brody Grundy got held by Scott Lysette, who otherwise had a really nice game. Yeah, Lysette did a good job ending up neutralizing Grundy and Gone when he was in those contests and had a positive impact all over the ground compared to Brent Tickle these past few weeks. Tickle had really struggled the prior week against Todd Goldstein. I called that he would come back in. I didn't expect him to have as strong an impact as he did. So Grundy scores, shushes the crowd, bit of a mistake. Their run ended after that, and in fact, they got outscored 30-9 to the rest of the way. Butters got the final goal third quarter after the siren to cut the lead back to 11. He had gotten held by Trent Rivers, and that was a huge moment. That really restored the momentum. You felt getting back within two goals and ending that run massive. Even though they didn't take advantage of the first couple chances they got in the fourth quarter, but Jeremy Finlayson got the next goal to put it within a kick. He had shoved Jacob Van Royen after a tackle, and then it's always the retaliator that gets called for things, and Van Royen was the retaliator of this case. So with just under 16 minutes to go, it was back to a four-point game, and Port had really strong pressure to open the fourth. It had been good at times throughout the game. Power ended up with the first nine inside 50s in the fourth quarter, and then Going back to that holding the ball call, it was after that that Butters had one of his smartest kicks of the night. He had a really good kick to reverse the field to Dylan Williams. Williams missed a chance at his first career goal, but Ollie Lord marked the kick really low. They were wondering on the broadcast if the point of the ball hit the ground, but Lord scored on a check side from a difficult angle. He's got the lead back from a play that started with a Christian Petraka smother. One of the few times Butters got beaten on the night. It was a smother of a Francis Evans kick where Butters kind of slipped and wasn't able to crumb it. Tom McDonald gave the D's lead as the rain increased again. After another miss from Butters, you had the pasture play where Port did end up taking the lead for good. Trent Rivers tackled Darcy Byrne-Jones to prevent a handball at close range, but he managed to soccer the kick to the goal square. Jason Horn Francis got away a handball on the second effort, and Connor Rosie had a snap and a massive reaction on the deck afterward. So Port took the lead for good with 440 left, and that was the last goal of the contest, just a behind each way after that. And it was a big Scott Lysette hit out at the end that helped seal the game, which seemed very appropriate given his positive impact in his first game back since coming off against the Bulldogs in round five. Speaking of Ken Hinckley, his reaction at the siren was awesome. My biggest takeaway with Ken Hinckley from this season has been his players like him. He's got an awesome relationship with his guys, and I think that's more and more apparent when you see not just him on the bench and his energy, but the way he interacts with the players, you know, 
high-fiving and hugging after wins, having a meaningful conversation with Jason Horn Francis after one of his really big fourth quarters. So that relationship being strong has probably really helped Hinkley's standing. And it's amazing just how quickly opinion on him, not just from us, has shifted as the power have gone on this seven-game win streak. Do you think, Ethan, that the rain allowed Port to play more to their strengths as it was picking up? I don't know, honestly, because I thought both teams had good stretches in various weather conditions, so I don't know how much correlation there actually was there. Regardless, the result is there for the power, and Zach Butters led the way, kicking 2-1 from 41 disposals, 12 score involvements, 10 clearances, and 581 meters gained. For anyone to have double-digit clearances against the Demons midfield is particularly impressive. And he was controlling the ball really well throughout the night, was making smart kicks. I mentioned the one to set up Dylan Williams, leading to that Ollie Lord goal. That was the most notable of them, but there were many others throughout the night. Dan Houston kicked 1-1 from 33 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 815 meters gained. He was the biggest ground gainer on the night. Connor Rosie had the go-ahead goal in a 31 disposal performance, nine intercept possessions for Rosie, very active in pressuring in the midfield and forward third, and gained 756 meters. Ali Wines had 26 disposals and one point, though you might see multiple points on his very rectangular head. Jason Moore France is a goal from 23. Willem Drew at 22, 13 contested possessions, and an octopus, which is, of course, 10 tackles. Dylan Williams, 22 disposals at 512 meters gained. Still doesn't have that first career goal, but has been a smart mover of the ball from halfback, and I think has been getting better in defense these past couple weeks as well. Darcy Vernon Jones had 14 disposals and 12 tackles. He has been the catalyst for a lot of Port's best pressure since he transitioned to that half-forward role, and I doubt Port win without him being in there despite him not kicking a goal himself. Oh, by the way, Francis Evans, 11-0. Should have kept. You saw the massive bleeding he had in the first quarter? That was a scene. There were a couple of who had, like, a lot of blood this week. Uh, Luke Parker. Luke Parker was the other really notable one in the next game we'll talk about. Some team stats of note here. Inside 50s favored Port Adelaide 61-48. Melbourne did win hitouts 45-23, but the power won clearances 40-30, including 31-20 off stoppages. They had 29 more marks, which is surprising when you think of Melbourne spacing you out, slowing you down, and, you know, going kick, mark, kick, mark. But as I was mentioning earlier, the power prevented that, keeping their forward six. Also, Port Adelaide was just the more physical team, and that's how you have to beat Melbourne, because Melbourne is really good at taking advantage of space. You have to take that space away, and they did. Another way to illustrate that, 12 more tackles inside 50, 18 to 6, and 66 to 52 on one percenters. Stats of note for Melbourne, Clayton Oliver, who we may not be seeing for a minute, may miss up to a month with a hamstring injury, according to John Ralph. No official word on anything, but something to watch for multiple reasons. But yeah, I, I already traded him out of my classic fantasy team, though. Who'd you put in? Uh, Sam Walsh. I was did not have quite enough budget for Tim Torano, so I went with Walsh. But yeah, Oliver's, in what I thought was one of his less refined games, still had 30 disposals, 9 tackles, 8 clearances, 569 meters gained. Lockie Hunter, a goal and 24 disposals. Stephen May, 23 disposals, 696 meters. Christian Petraka, a goal, 2 behinds, 22 disposals. He kind of had stretches where he was dominant and then stretches where he was just very quiet. 
And uh, Trent Rivers, 19 disposals, 9 intercepts, 546 meters gained. Just my biggest takeaway from this game, and even, I, I said it at halftime even, Port Adelaide showed exactly how you want to play against Melbourne. Every team needs to take notes on this. You have to body up to them. You have to be physical because they're going to get you if you let them space you out. It's that simple. You expect this sort of contest to begin the Saturday quintet? North 14-690 defeated by their own stupidity and also Sydney 14-993. I mean, North being defeated by their own stupidity, I could kind of see coming. You know, here's the thing. If anyone that wasn't one of the bottom three teams, maybe GWS, who I think is like the clear team between the bottom three and everybody else, even though they've played pretty well, I'll get into them probably like an hour from now. Like if it was anyone outside of North Hawthorne or West Coast that did this, it would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Instead, I choose to look at this as North Melbourne for probably three, maybe three and a half quarters was the better team in this game. And while it would have been nice for them to win, especially in a week where their coach goes on leave, the fact is they bodied up to a good, albeit shorthanded and currently struggling team, and they were in the game the entire way. And despite a very stupid way to end the game, I don't think they have a lot to be ashamed of. Swans definitely had chances to punish them early on in the first. They had three more scoring shots, but it was just a three-point lead. Some easier misses from the Swans. They led 24 to 21 in quarter time, but X score, one of the expected score metrics, had the Swans up about 31 to 15. And then from there, North's physicality kicked in more. George Warlaw has showed a lot of his merit in his debut. Really tough player, willing to lower his head and make some risky plays and still be smooth with the ball while at it. To have him and Harry Sheasel in for the first time was really, really fun to watch. My favorite thing about Wardlaw by far was when he got absolutely crushed in a contest with Will Hayward and just got up from it. A couple minutes later, he went down to the rooms and kind of had an early start to halftime, but just like his willingness to get in there and assert himself against big, physically mature guys was awesome. Also, Bailey Scott had a really nice game and also got dacked. Yeah, but... Without Luke Davies Uniac, it's like, who in the midfield is going to do shit? Bailey Scott always seemed like that next person who would be able to take that step, and I'm glad he did. He's listed as a midfielder and medium forward, but ended up playing, you know, doing some work, kind of helping them emerge from their own 50, but I liked his game. The timeline of this one, Sydney were up 17-0 to very early, really had a chance to bury him early, didn't do it, trailed for like 20 seconds in the second quarter because... After falling behind 27-25, the Swans got an immediate clearance and goal. They went into half up 16, but then North really took it to them physically to start the second half. There was a little scrap after a tackle on Luke Parker, and it was just like, it, it wasn't, we're just trying to get out into your skin. It was like, we're here, we're not getting back down easily. You had Parker and Wardlaw going after each other like 100 meters away from the play at one point. Maybe it, was, it was probably less than 100, I don't know, 80, whatever. Point is, that was cool. North trailed by 16 midway through the third. That was after Buddy kicked his 1,057th career goal, which tied him for Doug Wade for fourth all-time. He's not going to get any higher than the fourth, though. Jason Dunstall is still, what, 170-something goals off that? Yeah, Dunstall is third all-time at 1,254, so it would take 
pretty incredible series of events for Franklin to even sniff that. North kicked the Swans' ass on clearances all game, and the game kind of stayed between 9 and 15 points for a while. There was one point where Nick Larkey and Jaden Stevenson leaked behind everybody to get a goal. John Longmire screaming on the phone after, which was a pretty funny visual. It was 73 to 64 after three. Larky had gotten the goal to do that, get it back to within, you know, a goal and a half. Then a kind of iffy call. Callum Coleman Jones supposedly getting pushed. Gave the Swans a goal to cut it to three, less than a minute into the fourth quarter. And it turned into, in all bridging the third and fourth quarters, a 31 0 North run where the only behind was Harry Sheasel hitting the post from a tough angle. And it looked like it was going through most of the way. Powell kicks the go-ahead goal, then a Nick Larky snap. Then I loved the uh, commentary team saying, like, you've got a forward stoppage, you got to bring Sheasel forward. And not only does he come forward, he scores right off of a Todd Goldstein ball up. Sheasel, he's Harry Sheasel, he kicked a goal and plays footy better than you. That's good. I've been saving that for a while. That, that was legitimately funny. Thank you for, for bringing that into my life. The one knock on Sheasel is he's not a great set shot, and he missed a couple throughout this game, including one that kind of could have put it away. He intercepted an Ollie Florin kick, had a kick from 42 with 418 left and missed, and that kept the lead at 9. Like, if you put it out to 14, the game's not over, but it's damn close, and it's calling what are still a chance. Oh, they still remain a chance against the Lions. Right, chaps? The uh, guys from Chaps Chap Cast just, like, randomly tweeted that. 30, 45 minutes ago. I really appreciated it. Anyway, North had chances to put this out of reach. They failed to do it. And if they had just lost on a normal goal, it would have been whatever. Isaac Heaney scored to cut it to three with 2.45 left. And then there's supposed to be a ball up near the goal square. This was in the final minute. Yeah, just about a minute to go at this point. And uh, it did not happen because about 40 seconds prior... North made their 76th interchange. Um, the limit is 75. So what happened was Liam Shields wasn't called to the bench, but he was cramping. And he came off alongside Will Phillips when they were already down to one change. And apparently you get warned once you're down to 10, 5, and 1 interchange. So they'd already been warned, but I guess they just couldn't prevent it at that point. And then... At the next stoppage of play, the interchange steward alerts the controlling umpire, and it's a free at 50. And with the Swans being in their forward 50 already, it was a gimme goal for Hayden McLean. The fact that this happened against North is particularly funny, too. I learned about this game from uh, Round 6 2008, where the Kangas of Swans drew after a messed up interchange left the Swans with 19 on the field for a minute, during which they tied the game. It was after that that they introduced this rule about the interchange steward alerting the umpires. It was very confusing for the fans inside the stadium, and you had a bunch of angry North fans, like, tossing stuff onto the field following the game. But if you go back and actually watch everything, it was really, really well explained on the actual headset by the umpires, which was really nice. I think the commentators were a little slow on the uptake. But they did their job. I mean, the whole thing was obviously shocking and very, like, a very unique, rare situation that's going to be remembered. 
But again, like I'm not all that disappointed in how in how North played and how North played despite that, because look at where they're coming from. Look at what happened to them this week coming into the game. They put up a good fight. They were the tougher, more physical team. And there's a chance even without that that they blow this game anyway, because they missed a couple of shots that could have put it away. If I had a nickel for every time North Melbourne had a guy hit the behind post and come away with no score on a chance to kick his first goal in this game, I would have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's funny that it happened twice. Disappointing that neither of us are good enough with the Doofenshmirtz voice to make that really meme-worthy. Yeah, it was both Wardlaw and Blake Drury who had that opportunity at various occasions, and neither of them could do much with it. So that was that was significant. That ended up being a very important moment in the whole sequence of this game. It's four points the Swans needed. They did not play that well, but I will say, Bonnie Franklin looked way less washed. He kicked 3-1, that's cool, but more importantly, he had five tackles and really punked Ben Mackay, who can match up to him physically. And Nick Flakey, in the later stages of the game, really did some heavy lifting, did a nice job with a couple of intercepts and just moving the ball, you know, earning that lizard nickname. So, a couple of positives they can build off. Still, huge game coming against Carlton this week, which is really going to be a desperation game in a lot of ways. That's the Margaret game on Friday night. I look forward to watching that one. By the way, fitting that Blakey finally was able to elevate his game against the team for whom his dad played and is currently an assistant, had to just think, no, I've got to be my best. I can't let dad beat me. Stats of note for Sydney, who have now won seven straight games head-to-head against North and 12 on the road against them. Yeah, that does include three in Tasmania. Uh, Chad Warner, a goal, 31 disposals, 644 meters. Robbie Fox, 28 disposals and 14 intercepts. Luke Parker, who I really liked in this game. He had the bandages like Joel Selwood. Had to get re-strapped up a couple times. He had a goal, 28 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 9 score involvements. Errol Golden, goal, 24 disposals, 488 meters. Jake Lloyd, 19 disposals, 480. Buddies 3-1 came on 9 marks. Will Hayward's 1-1 came on 9 marks. Noticed a lot of Hayward and Hayden McLeat. By the way, Fox, as well as Blakey, got completely punked by Paul Curtis on one of the best goals of the season thus far. Curtis didn't have a remarkable game by any means outside of this goal. It was his only goal of the contest, but it was a double don't argue plus a difficult goal from the pocket. And we'll mention it a bit more at the close of the show as well. If you didn't see that one because you weren't watching this game that closely, go back and look at what Curtis did. North had greater disposal efficiency overall by 8%, about 78 to 70, but Sydney were cleaner inside 50, and from what I saw, I could kind of see that. It also makes sense given the chances that they missed early on, because they were really smooth getting that transition into the 450 in the first quarter. North were plus 24 in hitouts and plus 20 in clearances, but the Swans were better in the air and were plus 8 in contested marks 15 to 7. Individual performers for the Kangas, Bailey Scott with a goal from 33 disposals and 821 meters. Jai Semkin kicked two goals from 28, eight clearances and 468 meters. Harry Sheasel, the subject of that lovely song that I just did, 2-2 from 25. Hugh Greenwood with 23 and 13 contested possessions. He's also gotten increased numbers since Davies Uniac has been out. He's been one of those next guys up in the midfield as well. 
Eddie Ford with a goal from 21 disposals. It was nice to see Ford get into things. Todd Goldstein had a goal with 45 hitouts and 17 disposals. And Callan Coleman-Jones kicked two goals from 16 disposals and seven marks. Coleman-Jones had been injured to start the season, but with Tristan Jerry out and Charlie Coleman having that horrific injury, he's gotten another opportunity and has made good on it. A game that I expected to be a lot more competitive that we probably going to end up talking about a lot less than I thought we would. Bulldogs, 11-19-85, defeating Adelaide 5-10-40. Revenge out of the Central Highlands? It seemed like, you know, similar to last year, neither team could kick straight. I don't know if win was a huge factor there or what, but uh, the Crows, in all of their losses, even the loss of Geelong, had been competitive before today and before this one. That, that was not the case here. And they were also coming off one of their better performances as well, really shutting down St. Kilda last week. But the Dogs had 11 scoring shots to three in the first quarter, 18 scoring shots to seven in the first half, but inaccuracy plagued them. They kicked 4-7 in the first and 5-13 by halftime. Still a 21-point lead, and the Dogs' success there came off ground balls. They were picking up really cleanly. Caleb Daniel, Bailey Smith, Anthony Scott were all really strong in those ways. And those are three players that I've really focused on these past few weeks because Daniel transitioning from a back to a small half board has been one of the more interesting positional changes this year. And we know that he's capable of strong kicks on either foot. But as I think you mentioned a couple weeks ago, Daniel being moved up just allows for a bit slightly different look in the forward group when it's otherwise so tall, and he's been a good option as a result. Bailey Smith's gotten more and more of the ball with Adam Trelore being out, and I think it'll be difficult for Luke Beveridge and staff to balance out their roles once Trelore gets back from his hamstring injury. And then Anthony Scott doesn't get a whole lot of the ball, hasn't gotten close to 20 touches any game this year, but he's smart when he gets the chance with the ball in hand, and he's now kicked goals in five straight games, including two in Ballarat on Saturday. A depth guy actually contributing for the Bulldogs. It has happened. It has frequently happened. That greater depth is definitely part of why the Dogs have won seven of eight. My biggest takeaway from this game, the Crows were due for a frap game. This was probably that one. It's just frustrating because their next couple games aren't going to be easy either hosting the Lions and then going up to Darwin to take on the Suns. The Crows were a bit shorthanded for this game at forward with Taylor Walker managed and Riley Philthorpe out injured. That did allow Lachlan Gallant and Elliot Himmelberg to get back in. Gallant had a goal early, but they didn't have as great an impact otherwise. And Darcy Fogarty wasn't able to elevate in Walker's absence. He's really cooled off since a hot start to the year. Yeah, loved him the first few weeks. Not so much lately, just... The biggest thing I got out of this game, the Bulldogs midfield wasn't just Marcus Bonham-Helly, who was phenomenal again. It was Baz Leica, it was Libba, it was Bailey Dale going a little bit further back at times. It's a very complete unit, and that's something that I think we've understood for a while, but maybe it hasn't reflected on the field as much until Easter time this year. The thing is, outside of Rory Laird, the Crows just couldn't keep up. Most weeks, their midfield is good enough to mask that their defense isn't great. But consider that Tom Dude was out concussed, and then you lost, even though I didn't think he was playing very well, Mitch Hinge to a concussion. It just, it didn't go very well. They got down by as much as 50 in this game. It was supposed to be a good game, and it wasn't. And thankfully, 
The other game going on this time was good. Mentioned Bazlanka multiple times. He was the possession leader in this game with 37 disposals. Had 9 score involvement, 7 tackles, and gained 560 meters. He has been in form for the past couple months. And again, it'll make for an interesting spot for Adam Trelor when he comes back. Maybe he'll end up with more of a following and pressure role, allowing Smith to get more of the ball. Billy Dale with 36 disposals, 9 marks, 9 score involvements at 535 meters. Speaking of Bailey's, Bailey Williams had a goal too from 22 disposals. I guess you'd consider, you consider Williams a depth guy as well, even though he's pretty established at this point, I'd say. I think he's established himself well enough this year that he's moving beyond that to an extent, but still more consistent performances out of him. Tom Libertore, two behinds with 33 disposals and 11 score involvements. Bonapelli kicked 1-1 from 30. Caleb Daniel had a goal from 30. Jack McRae somehow wasn't in the best players listed in the AFL website article, but had a very complete showing again. Surprised we didn't mention him earlier, maybe just because he's such a given at this point to put up consistent numbers. Two goals is a little bit surprising from him. Don't think of him as much of a goal kicker, but 26 disposals, 7 tackles, 489 meters gained. That's more of the norm. Oscar Baker had 20 disposals and 654 meters as well, but really fun to watch all year and one of their more consistent ground gainers. And then Tim English had 29 hitouts, 21 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and seven tackles. He is the All-Australian ruck as it stands, yes? I think so. I think there are other guys that have been really good on actual hitouts. But in terms of complete play, yeah, he's he's a much better overall player. Even if he's taken a bit of a step back from the start of his season, he's still he's still really good. And he's much more of a modern ruck in that he's you know, not exclusively just hit ball. Compare that to Riley O'Brien, who had only like 12 disposals despite his 63 hit outs. Excuse me? Yeah, uh, 63 hit outs. Still 17 off the all-time record from Todd Goldstein. Chump. The Dogs had 101 more disposals than the Crows and 70 more handballs. They also were much more efficient in handling the ball inside 50, 63% to 43.9%. And again, that's where the ground balls really reflect in the statistics. Just cleaner pickups, cleaner possession overall for the dogs on a day where the Crows weren't able to bring their best game. Weather conditions, being good at ground balls, those two things kind of go together. feel like the dogs are a team that generally won't be negatively impacted too much by the rain. Crows committed 16 more turnovers than the Bulldogs as well. Tackles inside 50 were 16-7 to 7 in the Bulldogs' favor, and... This is a puzzling one. Crows with only 42 interchanges compared to the Dogs' 70? Were the Crows just loading all their other interchanges to North? I I don't have much of an answer for, for that. That's that's weird. Yeah, I'm, I'll look into the press conferences and see if there was anything asked of Matthew Nix about that. That's just strange, because it's not like they didn't go down a man. Yeah, that's, that's really weird. They were shorthanded in defense after Hinge went out, but maybe that impacted things a little bit, but that's very dramatic there to have just 42. Rory Laird, I can just lock him in a captain basically every week. 34 disposals, 10 clearances of the octopus. Chase Jones, a behind, 23 disposals, 618 meters. Jordan Dawson, a goal, a behind, 22 disposals, 13 contested possessions. Wayne Millera, 21 disposals and 535 meters gained. Miller could be actually a really important fantasy piece coming up during the bias, considering he's both a defender and forward and has gotten more of the ball compared to the start of the season. So something to watch out for there. Oh, yeah, we face each other this week. Ooh, OK, 
Here go hell come. Oh, here go hell come. For me, yeah. Even though I did take down the ladder leader. Fremantle or Wallyallop for these couple weeks. 16-10-106, defeating Geelong 11-11-77. This is a game where the Cats' lack of depth definitely showed, particularly in the middle. I think we both underestimated the importance of Mitch Duncan. Yeah, Geelong are now 5-1 with Duncan and 0-4 without him. Just gives off big 2021 vibes. Still clearly a stabilizing presence back there, especially because he can play it a little bit further back. Maybe he could have been able to contain some of the Fremantle runners a bit more because the Cats' smaller defenders were outrun as well. Also was very puzzled by the fact that Jack Henry was playing forward more than anything else when you're already shorthanded in defense and you're against a club that goes so quickly through the ground and will put you under the pub in your defensive 50 a lot. That was a misstep by Chris Scott. Yeah, I liked how Henry played, but putting him up front didn't work. I'm alarmed by two things. One, the lack of midfield depth, which the midfield wasn't even necessarily good last year. It was good enough that the elite forwards and elite defenders could make up for any shortcomings there. And last year, the defense was just rock solid. I'm really concerned by the lack of quality small defenders with Zach Tui looking washed. Jake Kolajashny, I think it was Geelong Insider, gave him like a B or B minus, but he also had an awful turnover that led to a goal to put the Dockers up 17 with a little under 13 minutes left. An uncontested kick to an uncontested mark, and he fucked it up. And while it didn't you know, immediately lead to a goal. About a minute later, it got scored. Jed Views has just been quiet. And for all the good tall defenders that this team has, even with Jack Henry playing forward, and even with Dave McConing still a week away, hopefully just a week away, because he's badly needed, they just, there's a lack of, like, someone who's built like Griffin Logue or something that can match up with a smaller forward. Like, like it's no wonder they got cooked by Isaac Rankin. I mean, he's kind of been cooking everyone, but... It was also an uncharacteristically bad game from Tom Stewart and a quiet game from Jeremy Cameron. The biggest thing I'd do to solve the midfield right now is I would put Brad Close into more of a midfield role because he's fast as fuck, and instead he's been a forward where he hardly gets to assert himself into the game. And if you let him play more in the middle of the ground, like, he's got great instincts. He's still fast. He's still good with the ball. Instincts are something that this team seems to be lacking at the moment, especially forward between him and Tyson Stengel having a puzzling game. Yes, yeah, Stengel, no physical signs of rust, so that was great. Mental signs of rust? Yeah, um, had this play early in the game where he was basically, like, out of bounds and tried to kick a dribbler that would have never worked. Like, Eddie Betts wouldn't have even tried this. You sure Eddie didn't teach him to do that? No, Eddie wouldn't have even tried this. Eddie would have been like, this is a fucking stupid shot. I'm not doing this. It was... It was bad. Overall, like, Stengel was not a problem in this game, but things like that are going to be costly in close games. So would, and if this had been a close game, you know what else would have been costly? Would have been Mitch Nevitt's miss from, like, 20 meters out, just about straight on, which I thought was going to matter more. Other than that, Nevitt was good. Like, the list of positive, the list of positives in this game is short. Probably Nevitt, Tanner Brune, Isaac Smith, who looks like he can play for at least another couple years. Asada Radagalea, Tom Hawkins. Nevitt looks solid. On a healthy team, Nevitt is one of those like, damn, I wish we could get him into the lineup type guys. On a less healthy team, it's not bad that he's in there every week. 
Cats led at quarter time by two, but didn't lead past the second. It was Lockie Schultz who gave the Dockers the lead for good about midway through the quarter. Schultz with another solid game. Thinking about the positives for Frio, there were a lot. Yeah, there were a lot of them. If Lockie Schultz were playing in Victoria, his name would be mentioned a lot more. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And I was really happy for a more complete game from Bailey Banfield. Even though he didn't finish accurately, kicking 1-3, he was much more active on the full round. Saw more of the marking ability from him as well. Eight marks as part of a 20 disposal day. He's someone who has needed to be in the 18 for a while, and he's had that steadier time now. He got a coach's vote, I believe, and I think Ethan Hughes got three. And Hughes was a player that I've been looking at going into this year. He was my sleeper pick and has returned to more of that wing role where he's more comfortable. You got him on the older side there, Nathan O'Driscoll on the younger side, and Nathan O'Driscoll has definitely been your pet project for this Frio team. I really like him. It was weird. Most of his involvement in this game was like in slower sequences, but he was still very good out on the wing. 20 disposals and 10 marks. Most of all, though, Frio were able to get it through the middle. No Jablong player had 20 disposals. The midfield got their asses kicked. The last time that's happened outside of 2020 when games were shorter was by Fremantle against Geelong in round 22 in 2009. And despite all of that, there were times in the second half where it felt like the Cats had a chance to win this game. Tom Hawkins scored the opening goal of the third and things are looking good. And then all of a sudden they give up the next three. They cut it to 10 a couple of times, went into the fourth down by, and then all of a sudden gave up three straight goals and the leads out to 30. Ends up being the most lopsided loss for the Cats since the game at Sydney last year, which was all the way back in round two. That they were able to only lose this game by 29 is kind of a minor miracle. And that's the sort of thing that I'll be thankful for if we're looking at percentage later. But I'm concerned. Hopefully you take care of the Giants this week, but then you got to find a way to win one either against the Dogs going into the bye or at Port coming out of the bye, or else you're looking at six and seven. Oh, Port coming out of the bye. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fans already writing off the possibility of a top four finish. I think it's going to be tough when you consider the strength of schedule. You know, you've got Collingwood again. You've got a trip to the Gabba for your only meeting with Brisbane. I think there are enough good teams that if teams beat up on each other and a couple of lower teams steal a couple of games, like, you know, the Suns go in and beat someone or, yep, one of the other non-finalists goes out and beats a team that was looking at top four, it's still within reach, even if you only win, like, 14-ish games. The Cats' next opponent that ought to be very important if you're looking at those sorts of games, Greater Western Sydney next week. Yeah, it's a team that's actually played pretty well at Geelong a couple times. Need to handle them. Giants won there in uh, 2021. Giants will be without a couple of key pieces that got concussed. More on that in a bit. In the meantime, stats for the Dockers. The normal midfield stars for them had big games. Andrew Brayshaw with a goal from 33 and Octopus with the seven clearances. Caleb Sarong has arguably been the better of the duo with Brayshaw this year. A goal from 28, 14 contested possessions, 10 clearances and 9 tackles. Maybe the best contested player in the entire competition. Am I off the mark with that? I don't know if he's the best, but he's one of the better ones. I thought he was clearly their best in this game. I thought he was way better than Brayshaw. Not that Brayshaw was bad, but like, you look at the quality of Zoran's possessions. He was really good. 
Jager O'Meara, 26 disposals, 9 clearances, and 9 score involvements since he backed him in prior to that meeting with his old side Hawthorne. He's been much improved. Luke Ryan with 22 disposals and 567 meters. Hayden Young with 22 as well. Mentioned that Lockie Schultz had a goal. He had 20 disposals and 8 tackles. Disposal in this one were plus 106 in Wally Allop's favor. By the way, the broadcasters, I think they were like, they might have been strictly instructed to only call them Wally Allop. It was kind of ridiculous. They were more flexible on the seven broadcast, I think. But I like the clubs going going this direction, though. Oh, it's cool, but it's like, you know, with writing, you know, you try to come up with different ways to refer to teams. Like, for example, I'll say Half Moon Bay, the Cougars, HMB, the Coast Siders. No, it's Wally Allop, Wally Allop, Wally Allop, Wally Allop, Wally Allop. It's like the purple team. See, that was, that was one of my other little observations about this game. Josh Tracy hardly touched the ball, but it seems like just his presence, and I said this last week, it changes so much. You will have at least one or two goals a game where he is involved just by drawing attention off of other guys, and then someone like Michael Frederick gets to run. Frederick looked really good in this game, ended up with 2-1. Also, Johnny Amos, this is the sort of game that, like, should secure his spot in the lineup long term because he looked fucking awesome. I'm I'm really glad the Cavs get another crack at these guys. Hopefully they'll be healthier for that. That'll be round 20. Three rematches will be happening from this round, all of them in round 20. It's last week I thought was a loss that you could take a lot from. This one was like, all right, let's burn the tape. Well, let's not revisit this one. No, no, don't burn the tape. Like there are things that need to be learned from this game, but this this was not good. Geelong actually had seven more inside 50s, but were 16% less efficient in there. Frio won hitouts by 18. It felt like a lot more. Uh, Sean Darcy absolutely destroyed John Stegler. One, um, I think it was the Geelong Insider page. Their like, grades for the game gave Stegler an A+, plus, except he was wearing a Frio jumper. Even against a good Ruckman, it's not worth play. He just doesn't have it. I'd rather, even without decoding... Just go with Blitzobs and find a way to do the rest of the aggregate. There was a game last year or early this year where there was like a throw-in in the forward 50. The umpire called Geelong no Ruckman, and it was like on purpose that they had done this because then they immediately swarmed the opposing Ruckman and got a goal out of it. It's like, you have the ingenuity to do that. There was no need to carry a shitty player on your roster just, just to get his ass kicked in Ruck contests. Fuck it, just have Myers be the closest guy to the rug and get him to wrap him up immediately. Have Atkins do something. I don't know, just, this doesn't work. Decoding back makes it a lot easier, but i take the approach that Port did last year where, where it's just like, fuck it, no Ruckman, we'll, we'll survive. Uh, Frio had 107 more uncontested possessions and 35 more marks. Cavs committed six more turnovers. They got beaten just about every category. Tanner Broom was pretty good in the midfield that was otherwise struggling. He's really starting to settle in. He's got a goal off 19 disposals. Isaac Smith, 2-1 off 18 disposals and 526 meters. I saw some mixed reactions on Asava Radagolea's performance. I thought he was quite good. 13 disposals, 9 intercepts, and Tom Hawkins finished at 3-2, but Jeremy Cameron went goalless. Four behinds, two of which were shots that, like, you wouldn't even blame him for missing, two of which were shots that might have had, like, moderate degree of difficulty, but he, but you probably expect him to make them. Maybe you don't expect other guys to make them, but you expect him to. It's disappointing game overall. 
We're going to take a quick break. Five more games to recap, but only one really down to the wire. Another that was close, but uh, stay tuned. If you haven't heard about your team yet or you just want to dunk on the Eagles, we're going to do that. Remember, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. You can find me on Twitter individually at BenjaminHK01. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe sleeping right next to me. You can also find him on Instagram at Kathleen Brian. As we found out recently, he does not care if we place phones on him while we sleep. Yeah, it's uh, one of the one of the funnier things that I've noticed lately. Getting back into the action with Q Clash 24, a game that was close for three quarters, which is just about as much as you could ask for a Q Clash, given how lopsided a lot of those games have been. It was the Brisbane Lions 16-11-107, defeating the Gold Coast Suns 9-10-64. Ethan, this was your assignment in the late Saturday window, so have at it. Yeah, it kind of went how a lot of Q clashes have gone. Thinking back to the to the round 19 one that was so fun, they the Lions managed to work it out late. The margin didn't end up being as big as this one, but it had similar vibes in the fourth quarter. I mean, look, it's sort of a rivalry. It's not as heated as some, though. Like, I love how it felt like the players in Carlton and Collingwood knew they had an obligation to just go fight each other. And I think there was a bit less of an obligation for this. Also, even though the Suns' road showing was actually not half bad, considering how small their fan base is, and that's not a knock on them, it's just the fact is they're a new team still, and they had a small fan base in rugby country. There were still a lot of empty seats, barely 23,000 at this game, so that was disappointing. Like, I'd love for there to be more of a sense of pride in, like, let's beat the shin out of these guys that are down the road from us. And looking at... You know, if anybody might have been trying to go to rugby games instead, the Broncos played on Thursday, and the Titans and Cowboys weren't at home this week, so this was the show in town, and it just didn't draw. I didn't think the weather was really a factor there. No, the weather actually was, like, hardly anything to do with this game. But yeah, I don't have, like, too many profound takeaways from this game. Uh, Joe Danaher was good. Lockie Neal was best on ground. He won the Marcus Ashcroft medal, but he wasn't the only one. Uh, when we get into stats, I'll give you more of that. The thing I really noticed for the Suns, the two things was that Bailey Humphrey, who had been subbed out a week or two earlier, was really, really good in this game, at least in the first three or so quarters. And they used Alex Davies differently than before, played him further up the ground than past years. The thing is, it's fair to ask, would Tuke Miller have changed the outcome of this game? And I think the answer is no. Would Tuke Miller and not playing at the Gabba have changed the outcome of this game? I still think the answer is no. I think the Lions are just the better team. And if these guys played 20 times, the Lions would win 18, yeah, at least 15 at minimum. Like there's a world where the Suns end this streak sooner rather than later. But right now the Lions have won nine Q clashes in a row. And it seems like big second halves have been their thing pretty regularly. They got the lead up to 23 midway through the third off of a Jared Berry goal. We had two Berries out there. Tom Berry got subbed in. First time those brothers have matched up against each other, with Tom having been a Lion prior to this season. Suns did get it down in 12 on a Nick Holman goal. I liked his game, and he's the sort of guy you need to, like, create a rivalry. I mean, he's a physical dude with... You see, he just always looks angry. Uh, ben Ainsworth took a leaping mark in the final seconds of the third quarter, but couldn't convert the kick after the siren ended up with just a behind. And you, you think, what if? Because all of a sudden, 
Humphrey snaps less than a minute into the fourth quarter, and the Suns are down just five, and then they uh, they Suns it. I don't. I've seen you really describe this as Suns it. They just got killed the rest of the way, thirty nine to one to close the game out. It got very lopsided very quickly. Barely two minutes after they had cut it to five, the lead was back out to seventeen. And just felt like all right, that's that. The Suns didn't get embarrassed, but there's still this like. A discernible gap in talent here. Biggest thing I've noticed for the Lions is that Darcy Wilmot's playing way, way better than he ever had before. He's been like regularly strong week in, week out. This time, 22 disposals and 12 intercepts. He was such a huge part of this and just adds to what's been a super loaded group. Uh, less positive, I thought Sean Levins played a pretty shitty game for the Suns. I was the big, you know, put Kayla Graham in and Sam Collins has kind of done all that stuff. But I think Levins is now the weakest link defensively. And it's just, it's not quite a finals level defensive unit. The midfield, even without Miller, is good, even if they were knocked around in this game. The forward group, pretty quality. Sitting Bobby or Chol is a choice. Yeah, I still don't agree with that. And I don't think they would have kicked much more. Maybe they get two more goals out of his presence. Levi Casbolt's pretty much been playing every other week at this point. I, I like Levi Casbolt. He's just big. But yeah, I, I didn't see much else to this game as well. It was the more talented team won. They probably should have worked out the margin a bit more early on. Get all the Suns for finding as they did for as long as they did, but disappointing in the end. And yeah, Darcy Wilmot being a stronger halfback, being better in those one-on-one -on -one games, him having a more defined role probably gives Cam Rayner a bit more defined role in the forward part of the ground as well, which is nice because that's clearly where he does his best work. But defensively, the Suns were going to be under the pump for the whole game, and Collins and Ballard are asked to do a lot, and they did a lot, but they couldn't contain everyone. You noted Eric Hipwood having a really strong game as well, even though he wasn't a huge scorer. Yeah, he's one of those guys where the, the numbers won't necessarily define his performance he was just active and always close to the action, even if he wasn't the one directly touching the ball. He was just a really important piece. Jack Gunston and Charlie Cameron were beneficiaries of that. Uh, what else is there to say, really? Oh, Charlie Cameron had a different song for his first goal. It was a song by a band named Colored Stone, which I believe is made up of indigenous artists. The song is called Black Boy, so that was pretty neat Sir Doug Nichols' round touch. Yeah, this a really long-lived group, actually, coming from South Australia. Been around since 77, and that song came out in 84. Gonna definitely look more into them now that we heard one of their songs. Lions at the top six players by ranking points. Lockie Neal, 35 disposals and 10 clearances. Will Ashcroft, a goal off 30 disposals. Hugh McCluggage, a goal off 30 disposals. He's starting to play like, you know, not necessarily a guy who's ever going to win a Brownlow, but a key piece in a premiership midfield instead of like a, oh, wow, this guy is only like the fourth or fifth best. He's stepping it up. Him, Ashcroft, Neil, they are that core. I'm waiting for Will Ashcroft to win the medal name after his father. It, it should happen at some point. Josh Dunkley, 29 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 11 score involvements, 7 clearances. Jared Berry, a goal of behind, 20 disposals, 8 marks. Jack Gunston, a goal, 17 disposals, and 13 marks. Joe Danaher, remember at the start of the year when they were concerned about him? 4-1 uh, off 16 disposals, 8 marks, 467 meters gained. He's fine. 
yeah, let's it's let's not pick on Joey Knight. Lions were plus 21 inside 50s, minus 18 in headouts because Jared Witts, even against Big O. But Lions still had the edge in clearances by 2, 40 to 38. They were plus 32 in marks as well, which is emblematic of the control of the ball they had for a lot of the game, particularly in the fourth quarter. By the way, Witts did basically nothing other than get hit outs, which is the opposite of how he had been playing. He had, despite those 51 hit outs, seven disposals. Yep. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven. Seven disposals. Kind of hard to believe. Like, I had been praising him so much for being more than just a hit-out guy. And this week, both he and Riley O'Brien were big galoots. Man, yeah. Bailey Humphrey, the leading possession getter for the Suds. 1-1 from 26 disposals and 617 liters gained. Have not seen him playing through the middle like that before. I like that from him. Braden Fiorini at 21 disposals. Will Powell 19 and 478 meters. Matt Rowell 18 and 12 tackles. Charlie Ballard, 17, 13 intercepts, 11 contested possessions, 9 marks and 7 intercept marks. That's a step back from him. Pretty hard to believe. Mac Andrew with 16 disposals and 9 marks, which is relevant because he is Mac Andrew. Unfortunately, his kicking has a long way to go, but he's so fun to watch. Like, he's a fun, flawed, chaotic player. He's one of those dudes who, like, if you've got a teammate next to you even though you have all the room in the world to kick just like handball it to him and let him kick you know like the one Manny Ramirez cutting in front of I think it was Johnny Damon yes if you've never seen this even if you don't know anything about baseball just look up Manny Ramirez Johnny Damon the uh, first result on YouTube Manny cuts off Damon's relay throw it is not how you're supposed to play baseball the initial view by the way doesn't really show it is when they show the replay where Basically, the center fielder makes a throw in the left fielder. You, you gotta watch it. This this is not normal baseball. Nick Coleman had a goal from 14 disposals and 8 tackles. He actually was fined for getting into a little bit of a wrestling match with Will Ashcroft and Brandon Starsevich. So, those three players were bringing the heat. That was like the one time where it's like, yeah, this, this feels like a rivalry. Alright, while that was going on... Okay, I, firstly, I'm just disappointed that Q-Clash and Dreamtime of the G weren't standalone games. I said my piece on that in the preview. Of all the games that should be a standalone game, up there with Anzac Day is Dreamtime. And it's crazy to me that it doesn't get that treatment. Like, I would not mind having an extra Friday game, having a Friday doubleheader even. Have an extra Friday or play another on Sunday. I know Sunday is country footy day and all, but this could have been a great round to even bring back Thursdays for this purpose to have one game on Saturday night because Dreamtime is meant to be under the lights, but I'm disappointed that it wasn't standalone. And it deserved that sort of standalone attention because what a game. Essendon, 10-11-71, defeating Richmond, 10-10-70. The streak has been snapped. This was obviously your game, but I just want to say the way this whole thing went down was kind of perfect. For Essendon to kick a late game winning goal, like there's no way you could snap this streak with just like a normal three goal win. I think of like ending long streaks against a rival in college football. You can do it one of two ways something super dramatic or just absolutely beat the shit out of them, like when Washington put up 70 on Oregon a few years back. Or on the other end of things, 
Cal's dramatic victory in the 122nd big game in 2019, or Tennessee beating Alabama on a last second field goal. Like, you can't just beat them 34 to 21. There's got to be, like, it's got to be dramatic on one end or another in terms of the margin. Exactly. And, and this was, this had to be like so cathartic for Essendon, for the fans to finally get this one and to do it in this fashion. So, uh, Benjamin, why don't you tell us about the actual footage? Before that, just want to say the pregame ceremony was awesome. Both teams coming together, the indigenous players for both Essendon and Richmond wrapping their arms around each other and stepping forward at the end. Great show of respect and strength from both teams in that way. I think that really builds off what Richmond did last year. I wish we could have gotten to see more of that. We didn't really get all of it on American TV because coverage started about 20-ish minutes before the opening bounce. Before that, there was the end of an NRL blowout. We kind of hadn't seen this round between both NRL and AFL, by the way, with the team that entered the round last on the ladder just kicking the shit out of somebody. In this case, it was the Wests. God, that's a lot of syllable. That's it's just that's a pain in the ass to say. The Wests Tigers? Yeah, Tigers took it to the Cowboys, who have not been stellar this year themselves, but this is not Americans watching the rugby. Richmond were getting a lot of early entries in this game. They had the first five inside 50s and 10 of the first 11, but they weren't converting. They kicked 1-3 early on before Sam Wiedemann got high contact on two consecutive entries, and Essendon took their first lead, was back and forth throughout this game, just a two-point margin in Essendon's favor at quarter time. Richmond led by five at the half. I could have easily seen Essendon getting in front, but Nick Flostone had a couple really important saves in the first half, had two by the time you hit the middle of the second quarter. Noted his save on an Alan Davey goal being particularly important. Davey getting a goal in this one was really great. I think part of what has gotten Walla so invested in coming back and playing the way he has, and he's mentioned this, is seeing Davey and his and fellow Indigenous players getting these prominent roles. He seems to have really taken Alan Jr. under his wing. Seeing who do that? Sorry? Oh, yeah. Even though he didn't score, play the song because he's Walla. Also, play the Ugandan version of See the Bombers Fly Up. I did after this one went final. I hope you did as well. I need played it various times throughout the week after they win because it's fun. Puts you in a good mood. They need to get Koopy Bly out there for some games. Or maybe they just find this footy prodigy in Uganda all of a sudden. I mean, there's like a baseball prodigy in Uganda who's going to be playing in the MLB Draft League, which is like a showcase before the draft this summer. Kid named Dennis Kasumba. There were six league changes in the first half. The last one coming when Jack Graham restored Richmond's lead after intercepting a Jai Caldwell kick. Caldwell had so much of the ball in this game. Did not expect that from him at all. Ended up getting triple digits and fantasy points, and I won despite leaving him on the bench. Partially because my opponent left 125 from Alex Witherden on the bench. Yeah, that's that's another weird one. Getting more to that in a little bit. This game was just like a lot of fun back and forth. It was at times, but I found that it was really stop and go, actually. Especially in the first half, I was surprised at how much Essendon were playing uncontested ball. I mean, I mean back and forth more in terms of like, Neither team ever taking this big lead. What was the biggest lead in this game? The largest lead was 18 for Richmond near the start of the fourth quarter. Essendon's biggest lead was 10 in the first. But looking at the possessions for this one, 
Richmond were plus eight in contested possessions. Essendon plus 65 uncontested. They were clearly trying to keep the ball out of Richmond's hands, prevent those rebounds, and just control the pace more. And they certainly did because this was a very low-scoring game by both teams' standards. And by footy standards in general, 71 to 70? I mean, that's not that low-scoring. It's lower than average, but not, like, tragically low or anything. This game had more than enough excitement. You know, I like I said, scoring doesn't necessarily equal excitement. It certainly did with the way that this one ended, though. Pressure definitely increased for Richmond in the third quarter. He also had a really nice rolling goal from Shea Bolton in the late third. Bolton, by the way, is the 100th Indigenous player to reach 100 games. Something cool that they mentioned on the broadcast there. That Bolton roller was reminiscent of the Bobby Hill one from last week, actually. Even tougher angle, believe it or not. 79 degrees. You're not supposed to be able to do that. That was... Probably, regardless of how the game-winning goal was kicked, the most impressive kick of the round. That was, like, the most, like, the actual kick itself. There were other goals that were had great lead-ups. That was the best, the best kick. Richmond had potential to go up three goals at the end of the third quarter, but Nick Hind saved a Dustin Martin goal at the three-quarter time siren with a touch before the line. Martin has been getting into the game more the past few weeks, Start to really look like himself again. Had four goals last week and had the right sort of touches in this game. It was a Martin goal at the start of the fourth that got the lead out to that game-high 18. At that point, did you think Richmond were going to run away with it, Ethan? I thought it was possible. And that was despite Richmond having a comparative lack of forward targets. Morris Rioli Jr. was out hurt with a hamstring injury. Noah Cumberland was left out, which was understandable after the way he's played lately. At the same time, one or two more targets just to vary things up, and I think this game could have easily gone differently. I mean, there were so many clear sliding doors moments in this game. After he had that Dustin Martin goal, Essendon kicked the next two. Zach Merritt setting up Sam Durham for one of them, and then Jake Stringer kicking from 54. I, I love that you can count on Stringer for a barrel like at least once a month, if not more. And I love that we could start counting on Merritt to have these steadier sort of necessary captain's performances. He's been a good leader in the midfield, but he's really stepped up his game these past few rounds. And he was pretty much perfect with his disposals in the fourth quarter. In fact, he was perfect. Nine disposals at 100% efficiency. So that was important. Richmond got the lead back out to two goals when Judson Clark got a soccer right out of the line after he had been tangled with Mason Redman. That was a play where I thought like, Oh, it's fallen apart for Essendon. And that was set up by a good Dustin Martin crumb and kick into the 50. It was also just like a major defensive letdown for Essendon. I, how would you even describe that whole sequence? Well, Andrew McGrath tried to go into the middle for Brandon Zirk Thatcher, who is everybody's son at this point. He's been tasked with the most difficult forward assignments, and Essendon don't have that key defender right now who is capable of shutting them down. Jack Revolt got to that ball as he'd beaten Zerg Thatcher for a lot of the night. It was as soon as I saw that Revolt spoil it, I got really worried, thinking that Essendon were going to play themselves out of it because they weren't able to play slowly anymore. They couldn't build up with Uncontested. They had to really take the game on, and they ended up doing that because another strong Zach Merritt kick got the ball forward. Walla Dady had good. Walla got an important pickup. Alladini just kicked into space, and here's another one of those sliding doors moments. Richmond had the first three players going back to this ball 
in their defensive 50, but the ball perfectly bounced backwards for Sam Durham to run onto it. Durham had done a really job of this game going from defensive and center wings, kind of closing into a more inside role in the forward 50. And this was one of those times he connected with Kyle Langford to set up Jai Menzi uh, to run it in. So one goal game with four minutes left. You know where this is heading at this point, or do you? I mean, it's Richmond in a close game, but it's Essendon with this streak. I was wondering, would they cancel each other out and we just have a draw? That would have been awesome to have both Dreamtime and the season opener and in draws would have been so good. I think Walla missing across the face on that next entry really took that out of the question, maybe. Someday I'll get to sing the song again. Nick Martin had a turnover to Jack Graham. Graham was getting some really important intercepts in this one. The ball ended up with Ryan Mansell for a set shot, and Mansell kicked the opening goal, had played strongly against Geelong, but missed everything. That was when I started to think, are Essendon winning this? Start to think of how Essendon lost last year to Collingwood. Yeah, there was a little bit more time for them to work down the field because that Mansell miss was with 2.43 left was when they called it out on the full. Yeah, even though it was significantly earlier, it still, it get, it gets the gears turning. It gets you thinking, like, that's one of those things that always ends up relevant. That doesn't just go away. And then I've talked about Zach Merritt being really strong with the ball in hand, but it was a tackle on Dustin Martin that prevented a clean kick for Dusty into the forward 50 that got Essendon to rebound through Jordan Ridley, who was just standing back there as a goalkeeper. They didn't get immediate results. Jaden Short was able to clear the ball out of the defensive 50, but Dyson Heppel got a contested intercept mark on Ryan Mansell. Ever since having those first few games as a sub, Heppel has played more strongly. I wonder if he had some injury concerns near the start of the year that weren't super public. He's looked much more like the player we saw in 2020 and 21. Heppel got the kick to Mason Redmond. The entry got out the back. I was thinking when Jake Stringer ran onto it, is he going to try and kick this and play hero ball? No, he just centered it. And Sam Durham got in front of Daniel Rioli. Durham took all the time he could, kicked the winning goal with seven seconds left, and then he actually ended up having the ball on the ground as the final siren sounded, which was perfect. It reminded me of how John Noble came up clutch in Collingwood's first game against Carlton last year and ended up with the ball at the final siren then. The clutch performer had the Sharon at the end, and what an amazing on-the-siren reaction. I think some Essendon fans were already celebrating from the time Durham kicked the winner. It was cool because you had both. You had the reaction for the mark, then the goal, then the siren. Yeah, and it was like, you can have all that without needing, like, an actual countdown. It would be terrible with the countdown, I think. Yeah, so I think, once again, my my point about, like, why it's cool to not have the countdown clock for everyone, just, like, refer to that again. So, Essendon have snapped the 13-game losing streak against Richmond. Meanwhile, the Tigers are 0-9-3 in their last 12 games decided by a goal or less. That's the longest streak in league history. They're 0-7-2 in that respect since the start of 2022. Meanwhile, uh, how's Richmond's old VFL head coach doing? Yeah, that's Craig McRae, if you don't remember. Collingwood, by comparison, have won their last 11 home and away games decided by a goal or less, and their last 15 decided by 14 or less. Their last win within one goal, I think I've mentioned this before, at Marvel, so stop bitching about playing there, round 9, 2021 against GWS. I vaguely remember that game. Honest question, 
if you're Richmond, say you're up by like three goals with a minute left in a game. Do you just like concede two super easy goals so that you can say you won a game within one goal? Maybe this year you could do that because they've already got the draw that's going to make percentage probably much less relevant for them unless they're battling it out with the Blues for that spot. If you really want to snap the streak, maybe. Would that do it or would they, does it have to happen naturally? Like, would that even count? I'm thinking of that Futurama thing where it's like, you are technically correct, the best kind of correct, where they would technically win by a goal. I don't know. I think we just have to wait till it happens. If we, we may be waiting a while. Zach Merritt fittingly won the Iokin Award with 39 disposals, 8 marks, 7 tackles, and 679 meters gained. Massive fourth quarter with those 9 disposals and the big tackle on Dusty. Jordan Ridley had 32 disposals, 14 marks, 11 intercepts, and 498 meters gained. If anyone, he's been that sort of goaltender for them, though he's not the key defender. That's still the biggest thing that Essendon are missing. If Tom Lynch is playing in this game... I don't know if Essendon has a guy to handle him. They don't. Plain and simple. Jai Caldwell with 31 disposals and 8 marks. Andy McGrath, 29 disposals, 12 marks. Sorry, that's McGrath. Thank you. Mason Redmond behind from 27 disposals, 8 marks, and 555 meters. Nick Martin, 26 and 11 marks. Dyson Heppel, 22 and 9 marks. Sam Durham, the late hero. He died? Late game. There. That's two Essendon players that people could think of died. Oh yeah, not dead bed. But Durham, two goals from 21 and nine marks. Will Snelly, a goal from 19. Archie Perkins, 17 disposals, 512 meters. Brandon Zirk Thatcher, 17 disposals, 11 intercepts and nine marks, but still wasn't stellar against Jack Revolt, I think. A lot of the a lot of those market disposal totals, again, came from uncontested plays. So yes, Essendon were plus 54 in marks. But I think you mostly are thankful for that if you have Essendon players in fantasy. Essendon did put on seven more tackles inside 50 and had 24 more one percenters. They also made four more interchanges. And there was one interchange that Richmond didn't make that was really puzzling. I don't know how he didn't catch this at first. Jonathan Walsh from Don the Stat brought this to my attention. Dylan Grimes was off at the end of the game, I believe, because he was on the bench with a minute 42 to go, and there was a stoppage right there. Essendon had three entries in the last 100 seconds, plus Stringer had the kick to the top of the square that Durham marked in front of Daniel Rioli. I have to think Dylan Grimes wouldn't have let some of those entries or marks happen. Yeah, that's, uh... And for it to be one of your co-captains, too, makes it even more bizarre. That's a hard one to explain. Tim Taranto, who Kane Corn said wasn't a top 150 player, which, like, he's just saying this for clicks, for sure. He was using an argument of kick efficiency, but it's Kane Corn's. Look, you can say that Taranto's not a good kick for goal, but, like, he's an overall really good player. 1-1, 33 disposals, 9 clearances. Shea Bolton, 2 goals, 28 disposals, 7 tackles, 482 meters. He's been so good in so many different ways the last three weeks. And it's just, like, he does more than just highlight real plays. He's just a fun all-around player. Daniel Rioli behind, 26 disposals, 11 intercepts, 8 marks, 612 meters. Jack Ross, 26 disposals, 10 marks, 545 meters. Dustin Martin, 2 goals behind off 24 disposals. Jaden Short, 24 disposals. Nick Vlastone, 22 disposals and 11 marks. Noah Balta, 18 disposals and 490 meters gained. 
seems like he's really gotten it together after that really bad opening sequence against Tom Hawkins a week ago. On to Sunday. I don't want to talk about this game. You probably do, Ethan. Mitch Lewis, 6-2-38, defeating West Coast, 4-2-26. That's the second time this year that a single player's scoring has outdone the Eagles. And this one wasn't like he scored nine. It was, it was, it was six. And he had potential for a seventh late as well. But yeah, oh, Hawthorne, 22-10-142, defeating West Coast, 4-2-26. You knew this was going to be bad. The Swans saved my gauntlet pick at the last moment. If the Tom Barris news had come out before the Swans game had started, that would have been my gauntlet pick. Like, I didn't think it could be this bad, though. This is... I didn't think it was going to be this bad either. I knew it was going to be humiliating, especially with Tom Barris being out with illness. He could have definitely helped in the back. But there, there are levels of bad, and this, this is advanced bad. If there are 32 levels of bad, like there are 32 levels of based, where is this? 45 is the correct answer. The Eagles had one mark inside 50. It was from Oscar Allen, of course. Mitch Lewis had six. As a team, the Hawks had 18. The Hawks scored enough points in the first quarter to win this game. It was 43 to 12 after a quarter, 70 to 24 at half, 92 to 25 after three. So then you're thinking like, all right, it's a blowout, but you weren't thinking it's going to be an eight goals to one behind last quarter. Yeah. Um, in the second half, the Hawks outscored the Eagles 72 to two. I honestly love this from Hawthorne. I love that they were just going for it and properly humiliating the Eagles. You could say all you want about West Coast not having many guys to field. Jermaine Jones got hurt in this one, an ankle injury that could easily be syndesmosis and keep him out for a while, waiting for official word on that. But you can't chalk this all up to injuries. You simply can't. Passion, aggression, whatever the fuck you want to say, angry rant, man. There is no passion. There is no vision. There is no aggression. There is no fucking mindset in this football club. Nothing is there. It wasn't there. It wasn't fucking there except for Jermaine Jones, Tim Kelly, Jake Waterman, Jack Petrocelli, Don Sheed, and I guess Oscar Allen. It's one thing to get blown out by a good team. It's another to get blown out by a bad team. It's another to get absolutely shit on like this. The only way that I could rationalize, well, there are two ways that I could rationalize the Eagles playing this poorly. Either they're getting directions to tank, and if so, I hope the first pick gets taken away from them. Or the players are trying to force out Adam Simpson. Here's the thing, I know you're ripping on Simpson a lot, but like, what can he do with this group? The problem is, it took this long for him to realize that they needed to start changing things up when that should have been the case in 2021. And I think he's been getting a free ride even with the injuries. How much of that is him and how much of that is on management, though? I think it's an entire club issue and Simpson could be a fall guy for it, even though he's under contract for two more years. I want to see an external review into this club so badly. I was calling for one for the medical staff and strength and conditioning with so many soft tissue issues. Tissue issues, that's fun to say. Tissue issue. Yeah. Tissue issues. Yeah. But at this point, without a full review into everything footy related about this club, I don't know what can be done. It's a lost cause for this year. It's probably a lost cause for next year because I doubt they're going to force the guys out that need to be forced out. If the Eagles make finals again before 2030, I might be shocked. Look, a lot changes in like four or five years, but I think there's no realistic world in which they're a finalist before 2026 at best. I hope Harley Reid 
pulls an Eli Manning or an Eric Lindros and straight up refuses to play for the Eagles. I love how much you fucking hate this team, even though you're a member. I have every right to be livid. It's like, look, you don't have to be good to be competitive. And this was not competitive. You don't have to be good to pressure. We've said it time and time again. Any player at any club can pressure. Anyone can cook, but only the fearless can be great. Regardless, why did the Eagles not fucking pressure until a slight portion of the fourth quarter when they were already being three times over? It's a lack of effort as well. That's what's unacceptable. You can get your asses kicked. Like, North getting their asses kicked by the Demons a couple weeks ago wasn't anywhere near this bad. I like what our family friend in Perth said. This is the friend who helped me to become an Eagles fan. She said, I didn't watch. This season has been way too painful. We go to the games that are here, but we don't torture ourselves with the televised games. I told her, you're making the right decision. Okay, positives for Hawthorne. I mean, take any of these results and stats with the entire salt mine, or maybe the entire concentration of salt on this planet. They played hard the whole way. Good impact games from a couple W's. Josh Weddle and James Warple was waiting to see that for both of them, particularly Weddle being on the younger side. Weddle seemed to get a lot of praise from not just Hawks fans, but like footy fans in general. And that's impressive considering most people didn't watch this game. Or if they did, they turn it off rather quickly. Like I would imagine far more people would have rather watched the pregame coverage for Carlton Collingwood than even look at this. Um, that's what they did on the main Fox footy channel. They bumped this game off at halftime. They did the right thing. Yes, they did. By the way, Weddle was the rising star nominee for this round. He kicked two goals from 28 disposals and gained 495 meters. Connor Nash might have been their best overall player. 30 disposals, nine score involvements, eight clearances, eight marks, eight tackles, 521 meters. He was meeting Tim Kelly at stoppages and even though Kelly got a lot of touches, it was the right assignment, and Nash held his own, and then some. James Sicily, who I think has looked more and more captainly, I'm, I'm making that a word, these last few weeks, 30 disposals, 11 intercepts, 11 marks, 600 meters. Like, he's still James Sicily. He's not compromising who he is, but he's making sure to do captain things, like encourage a guy after a shitty play or congratulate him after a good one. And he's like, he can still be kind of an agitator guy while while being, you know, acting like captain's supposed to. So I, I like it. Brian Meyer's friend, James Warple, a goal, 27 disposals, 15 contested possessions, eight clearances. Lockie Bramble, a goal, 24 disposals, 701 meters. Mitch Lewis, that 6-2 came off of 24 disposals and eight marks. Again, he had five more marks inside 50 than the entire Eagles team. Will Day, 24 disposals. Jai Newcomb, a goal, 24 disposals, nine tackles. Carl Amon, 23 disposals, 7 tackles, 504 meters. Cam McKenzie, 2 one-off, 22 disposals. Dylan Moore, 1 one-off, 22 disposals. Dylan Moore, the baseball player, is still yet to appear in a game this year. He's been injured. Seamus Mitchell, 19 disposals, 489 meters. Luke Bruce kicked 3-1. Uh, some more team stats of note, just to give you a sense of how bad this was. Oh yeah, fire away. The Hawks had... 137 more disposals, 84 more handballs. They had 70 inside 50s to West Coast 29. Efficiency inside 50, they weren't great, which tells you like they could have scored even more. 54.3 inside 50 is solid, but not amazing. Eagles, on the other hand, 27.6. 
hitouts. Not surprised Ned Reeves and Lloyd Meek kind of gave Bailey Williams the business there. Well, Reeves got injured in this one, injured his ankle, so really a lot of it was Meek. 64-34 on hitouts. Hawks also had 112 more uncontested possessions. The Eagles did have more of one thing, turnovers, 16 more of them. Hey, it's something. Oh, wait, we don't want that. Despite having so many more inside 50s, the Hawks still recorded 10 more tackles inside 50, which see, that fits with like the lack of pressure stuff. That, that can't happen. It did. It did. The Hawks took 14 bounces to West Coast's one, and a lot of times taking a bounce is just a silly stat, like how Maxwell has never done it. But in this case, like, those things usually happen when you have room to run. I was about to say, hey, at least the Eagles bounced more than Max Gowan ever has, but you stole that thunder. The, the fact is, they had enough room to run that they took 14 bounces as opposed to the one that the Eagles took. Yikes. This game was just such a complete ass-kicking. Oh yeah, the Eagles recorded stats, apparently. There, there were a few Eagles players that showed up. Like, it's not that the whole team sucked, it's that a few players showed up, and the rest just fucking didn't. And the rest were that bad that this select few had to do literally all of the lifting. Don Sheen kicked 2-1 from 30 disposals and 8 marks. Didn't think he played a great game as a whole, but got the ball a lot. Alex Witherden, 28 disposals, 10 marks, 551 meters gained, and 125 fantasy points, which is hilarious to me. Tim Kelly, 26 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and 8 tackles. Jake Waterman, 19 disposals and 9 marks. Jack Petrocelli had an octopus and is just really fast. And we're done here. Thank goodness. I was paying more attention to Carlton and Collingwood as soon as that came on. Carlton 715-57 defeated by Collingwood 13-785. This game kind of reinforced a lot of stereotypes about these teams where Carlton has talent but can't execute and Collingwood is just so smooth. Pies led 32-8 after a quarter and 65-30 at half. Really, after the first quarter, Carlton played much, much better, but it was just too big a gap to make up against a team that's so fundamentally sound. Three team stats that I think illustrate a lot. Both teams had 51 inside 50s. Both teams were at 43.1% efficiency inside 50, and both teams had 57 tackles. And yet Collingwood were comfortably ahead the entire way because they're just better with their chances. What makes this team so good is that they don't make many mistakes, and if you make mistakes, they make you pay for them every time. Also, Darcy Moore had originally taken the intercept mark record with 11, and then Champion Data changed it to 10 because one of them came after a siren. Yeah, it was after the quarter time siren, literally just after. It was noted on Twitter that it actually was an important mark just to make sure the ball didn't get closer to goal, but unfortunately it isn't recorded in the stats, so he now becomes, I believe, the eighth player to have 10 intercept marks in a game. We've had two this year because Charlie Ballard also did it against the Eagles. See, that's it's kind of silly to me that it doesn't count because like the kick itself came before the siren, so that, that should count. I mean, it's not like you can't defensively play on the ball at all after the siren. If you couldn't even play on the ball after... Ollie Floyd would have kicked that winner against Port. I was so happy that Bobby Hill got the opening goal on this one. This has been the season of Bobby. It's like, you know the summer of George? This is the season of Bobby. <laughs> and I'm so glad that it is. Like, he, my, my take on this Collingwood team 
like, I think it was Todd Davey, the Essendon fan and podcaster who tweeted, you know, like, no, you cannot make me like this Collingwood team or something along the lines of that. I don't like Collingwood, but you know what? There are some individual pieces of this team that it's like, it is impossible not to like. And Bobby Hill is a great example of that. But this team has a bunch of compelling individual pieces between him, guys like Mason. I think Darcy Moore is really easy to like. Speaking of Darcy's, Darcy Cameron came back in for this game. That was good. Wasn't initially in, but with Jack Ginevid having the flu during week, he was downgraded to the sub. And so Darcy Cameron and Mason Cox were actually able to split some ruck time, and Mason was able to do some more of his roving work as a result. Had a goal late in this one. Great lead up to his 100th game next week, which of course will be overshadowed by Steel Sidebottom's 300th. And our 100th episode, which will be the preview. Ooh, yeah. Unless something like insane happens that requires its own episode between now and then, which, you know, you can't rule out. Guess you can't. Ash Johnson took a huge mark on Mark Pittenett. Was more coming from the side, though, which I thought was interesting. It was still cool. Oh, it was also because it's Ash Johnson. That's another player that, like, it's very hard not to like him. Perhaps it's just that we have a better feeling about Collingwood because of Mason, and also because they just play fun footy and we haven't watched it as much, so we haven't learned to really hate them. No, it's it's hard not to like Ash Johnson just like as a player. He's one of those dudes, like if you put him in, I don't know, uh, a son's uniform, everyone would be like, fuck yeah, Ash Johnson. Or at least people who pay attention to uh, to non-Victorian teams would. Yeah, that goal made it 40 to 9, and at one point it was 59 to 15. Uh, there was one sequence that could have made things pretty interesting. Carlton had a chance to cut it down to 25 late in the first half, but Charlie Curnow missed on the run, and then Bobby Hill had a big run back the other way, sold some candy on Adam Sod and set up Brody Majacek. That put it out to 65 to 29, ended up being 65 to 30 at half, and that felt like you know, it wasn't necessarily one of those, like, 11-point swing plays where it's like, man, that had to have been a goal, but it was it was a big juncture in the game. It really shut the door. It was still fun seeing guys get into it. It took a while for Braden Maynard to do things like that, but early in the game, you had Matthew Owies versus Josh Dacos. Dacos got his jumper ripped and looked like Tarzan. We'll go through the list of the usual suspects with good stat lines for Collingwood, but I want to focus on a couple of guys that I've focused on a lot that don't necessarily have great stat lines. And that's like, that's part of what makes this team so good. The players who aren't putting up big stat lines are still so heavily involved. Bo McCreary, who I've seen as always like this physical guy who creates goals by using his body well. Well, this time he did it with his speed. Like he's got real game changing speed that I just wasn't that aware of. And I was already like the Bo McCreary liker and Nathan Murphy. Didn't have a huge game, but anytime he's involved, they're going to get shit done on defense. Though he was witness to a Harry Mackay mark. Uh, from Carlton's standpoint, hey, Harry Mackay wasn't the issue. Took a couple decent marks. None of his misses were egregious. He, he played well. He was not the reason they lost. On the other hand, it's always funny to me when like a lineup decision backfires instantly. And we had one of those in this game. Alex Shinkata got left out of the lineup for Jordan Boyd, and it did not work at all. That was, like, very quickly a mistake. He gave up a 50 that turned a likely Josh Dacos goal into a guaranteed one because he got him after he took a mark. That was really the only time I wrote his name down and all, but he had a couple other derps and was just, just not good. 
Josh Dacos, gold, 27 disposals, 9 marks, 680 meters. Nick Dacos, 27 disposals. Jordan Goey, 27 disposals. He kicked behind. Honestly, he wasn't that noticeable. I mean, he was fine. Uh, Tom Mitchell, 26 disposals with 15 contested possessions and 8 clearances. Darcy Moore, who got all 10 coaches' votes, 25 disposals, 16 intercepts, 11 marks, ended up with 10 intercept marks, 10 contested possessions, and 100% time on ground. John Noble, the Carlton killer, 25 disposals and 494 meters gain. Didn't need to be clutch at this one, but still very solid performance and has been much more consistent this year than last. Steel side bottom, 23 disposals. Scott Pendlebury behind, 21 disposals and 8 tackles. Will Hoskin Elliott a goal and 16 disposals. Brody Majacek, yet another 4-goal game. Uh, Carlton won clearances 38-30 to and 30-18 to at Stavage, and it really didn't affect all that much, in part because everything they tried to do got intercepted. Carlton stats of note, Sam Doherty, 34 disposals and 661 meters. Adam Chera, not worth two behinds from 33. Sam Walsh, 29. Patrick Cripps, 26. Blake Akers, 25. Nick Hello Newman with 19, 8 intercepts and 8 marks. Lewis Young with 15, 11 intercepts and 7 marks. Charlie Carno did kick 3-2 from 16 disposals and gained 597 meters, but he needed greater accuracy in this one, clearly, and the Blues did as a whole because they had more scores. Don't overlook that. It's the one thing in which the Blues may have actually led other than clearances. I mean, look, they some of that was padded late. Collingwood had slightly more scoring shots for a while. Just kicking better for goal would have been enough to win them this game. It was the entry to those kicks for goal and so many other things, but it, it was a factor. I liked, in the Fox Footy article by Ben Cotton, some of the quotes from Sam Walsh. There's like a collective echoing from Carlton of we've got to be better. There was like a letter sent out to the fans, which seems a little extreme through 10 games. I mean, as bad as things have gone lately, you're still four five and one. But I like that the players have just like come together, like have been saying, this is not good enough. We have the talent to be better. And I like what Sam Walsh said when he was asked about fans leaving games early. We've got such a strong fan base and we've got to up the ante because we want them to be proud of the way we play. Not the fans need to stick around and cheer us on even when we're shitty, but we have to be better for the fans. Like, that's exactly what you're supposed to say and what you're supposed to do. So, good job, Sam Walsh. He earned a lot of respect for me for making those comments. Final game of the round was that other one we were talking about where it wasn't super dramatic at the end, but was close for its duration. Greater Western Sydney 12-8-80, defeated by St. Kilda 13-14-92. This was Max King's season debut. Sorry. This was Max King's season debut, and he kicked the Saints' first goal. When his first shot's a good one, you know, you're fucked. And he kicked 4-1 from eight marks. He was back in. Jade Gresham was back in. Big difference with those two being in. But I also noted how fearless Anthony Caminiti is, even though he never had that most important role in the first place. He is willing to take on pretty much anybody, and it was, and there were a few plays that he made outside of kicking toward goal that I noted. The most important one was much later on. It was a four-point lead for the Giants at quarter time. Teams were level at the half, 8-3-51. I was noting throughout the first half that the Giants' ball movement has been really quick, but also really sensible. They were looking for those shorter options, 
it wasn't quite tsunami level maybe at times, but it was fast enough that they were getting Sid Kilda back, pedaling in, pushing them a bit on rebound. Unfortunately, we saw some cracks emerge in their defense, especially once Nick Haynes went down concussed. Talon Ward came in for him. That is certainly not like for like. I hope Nick Haynes and Harry Himmelberg, who didn't play the second half, left the Giants shorter rotation. He also got concussed. I hope both of them are okay. I also really won't mind if they're going to have to take it easy next week. I really won't miss having to face them, and it should set up for Jeremy Cameron to get back on track like I thought he was going to this week. Rest up, recover well, enjoy your week off, please. In terms of individual positives of the first half, though, I was really noting what Mitch Owens was doing, because he was in the middle of the ground, getting a little bit of ruck time, actually, and being a really strong utility. It had helped the Saints even out clearances, winning more and more of them for the center, and then he got concussed really, really badly. Yeah, this was this was fucking scary. Yeah, he was hurt in the marking contest. He had gotten pushed down a little bit by Jack Buckley and then got Anthony Caminiti's knee to his head as he fell. He may have been knocked out before he hit the ground. Amazingly, he was alert enough later that he was able to return to the bench during the third quarter, which had to have been a morale booster for the Saints players. I'm shocked that he wasn't just carted off and thrilled that he was able to get back up there and just like watch the rest of the game. The Saints got eight of the first nine inside 50s in the third quarter, but missed their first three shots toward goal. And then the Giants responded with a couple of goals of their own. Jesse Hogan with a goal on rebound and Aaron Cadman with a step when he had been inaccurate from set shots. They were talking on the broadcast about his drops veering a little bit to the right. Seems like a Pretty easy mechanical fix that can help his accuracy a whole lot. Saints restored the lead thanks to a Caminini mark, and Higgins actually kicking accurately that time. The Saints were starting to get some rebounds of their own and controllable because they had seven intercept marks by a little after the midpoint of the third quarter. And I thought that that stat would be indicative of the Saints maybe pulling away, flexing their muscles a bit late, but that wasn't really the case. And I think some of that started from the work in the ruck by one Kieran Briggs, who was in for his first game of the year, selected over Matt Flynn and held his own against Rowan Marshall. Yeah, he did a nice job. He was not even close to one of the issues in this game and ended up getting rewarded for his efforts with a goal as well. I think Briggs at this point will probably hold on to a spot for at least the next couple rounds, and I could easily see him slotting into that ruck two role whenever Braided Proust comes back. Also a plus for Briggs, we haven't seen him be a complete dickhead like Proust. Saints led by three at three-quarter time after a clanger from Dougal Howard, which we shouldn't be surprised by, allowed Brett Daniels to kick a long goal that rolled in. By the way, speaking of Brett Daniels and the name Brett, apparently one of the umpires was calling Xavier O'Halloran Brent and was trying to get him to move two meters back. Because O'Halloran didn't respond, the Saints got a 50 out of it. What are their fucking names? Usually you've talked about how good the umpires are with people's names. Uh, they, uh... Not so good this time, I guess. In the fourth, the Saints had a couple opportunities to really break the game open. Took the lead for good when Max King outworked Jack Buckley for his fourth goal. And then here was another one of the really great plays from Anthony Caminiti. He took the ball off Tom Green, of all people, inside the forward 50. and got the ball to Jack Sinclair, who put home the snap. And I think that was really the sharpie on this game. It was the last goal, actually. There weren't any goals in the last 16 minutes, 24 seconds of clock time. Sinclair has been venturing forward more and more this year, and I'm surprised at how strongly he's played up there. I honestly shouldn't be, though, 
because he'd been such a solid mover and kick from halfback that those skills should translate if you slot him more as a half forward flank. And he's done that plus gotten more inside as of late. He's a very strong all-around player who unfortunately doesn't have a good haircut. I'm able to leave this game with very positive feelings about both teams, which is pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, it was another game where the Giants held their own against a tougher opponent. Another close loss for them obviously is disappointing on that front because they've had so many of them this year. Other than last round, their biggest margin in any game has been 21 points. So there's something to be said maybe about having trouble closing out games, but there's some youth in this team. They're still figuring things out defensively, especially with Harry Hillberg and Nick Haynes going to be out next week. It's going to mean that Jack Buckley and Connor Iden will have very important assignments. Maybe you'll see Callum Brown come back in as well. What really made me so satisfied with the Saints, like, as someone who's usually been critical of them, they went out and won a game where they did not get to play within their element. They had to deal with a team that was actually able to control some of the game and kicked accurately. And yet, even though they only beat a not-great team by two goals, they managed to win a game where they had to adapt and kind of had someone else impose their will on them, which they hadn't done before. They had only really won games over their style. So, get on the Saints for that. And I thought GWS were going to be, you know, way down at the bottom with the Hawks, Eagles, and North. And I also thought the Saints could have been down with that, which... Oh, clearly not. Oh, I, I did too. But but the distance between the Giants, who are pretty clearly team number 15, I mean, they're the only one with a loss to the Eagles and they barely beat Hawthorne. Like, I think Hawthorne's significantly better than both North and West Coast right now. But maybe, maybe a healthy North thir- versus Hawthorne, I don't know. But the fact is, like, there's a clear bottom three. There's a big gap. There's GWS. There's a smaller gap. And there's everybody else. And then below those other things, there's 50 feet of crap, or maybe 100, and then there's the West Coast Eagles. So St. Kilda are now at 7-3. and three. Does that seem familiar? Yeah, actually it does. <laughs> I would love to see them win next week and get back to 8-3 and three and just see how things could go differently this time. Jackson Clare kicked two goals, as I mentioned, from 37 disposals, 8 marks, and 733 meters gained. The Zion Wagoning Miller has been very consistent in getting a lot of touches, and has been more efficient as of late as well. 29 disposals, 10 marks, and 482 meters. I know he's been one of your favorite Saints to watch this year, Ethan. Yeah, I'm. he's played 17 games, and he's like very clearly a guy that you can rely on for 20-plus touches, which was not something that I had anticipated, especially this early in his career. He's done a really nice job. I, I still think they may... A mistake each week by not running Marcus Winhager out there. What they're doing overall has been pretty solid. Jack Steele, who was not suspended for high front on contact against Blocky Ash, had 25 disposals, 13 contested possessions, and 11 tackles. I've noticed him a lot more this year than last. Rowan Marshall, 30 hitouts, 24 disposals, and 14 contested possessions. Liam Stalker, 24 disposals, 10 marks. Kalawoki, 22, 13 intercepts, and 9 marks. He's gotten some good support back there, and it hasn't, and maybe it hasn't been the same guy every week, but they've had enough pieces there that Wilkie hasn't had to be the person in the back. Mason Wood, 21 disposals, 10 score involvements, and 7 marks. Good impact game despite not finding the score sheet himself. Brad Crouch, 19 disposals, 10 contested possessions, and 7 tackles. Josh Battle, 18 disposals, 10 intercepts. Jade Gresham kicked 2-2 from 17, so him returning along with Max King, 
making his season debut, meant that the Saints forward line looked much more normal. And hopefully it's those two plus Caminiti for a while. Caminiti's got a contract through 2026 now. I gotta say, you called that one. Yes, I did. Some interesting team stats. I don't know how much to make out of each of these, but the Saints recorded 61 more kicks and 51 more marks. Giants were clearly the much more handball-happy team. Saints more efficient inside 50. Neither team was great there, but 47.5 to 40.8. So this game to still end up with 172 combined points is kind of surprising we have that stat. Giants had 12 more clearances, 42 to 30. They had stoppage clearances, 30 to 15. But they committed 12 more turnovers. Lockie Whitfield led GWS with 32 disposals. Tom Green, 29 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 9 clearances, and 9 tackles. Stephen Canelio, a goal on 26 disposals. Brent Daniels. By the way, you know, this, there's this Twitter account that tweets every GWS goal, and they instead of calling him Brent, just says Binga Daniels, which I love. Uh, he kicked two one-off 24 disposals, and Josh Kelly kicked a goal. He had 24 disposals. That does it for our round recap. That was, I'm sure, very lengthy, but worth it because a lot happened this round. A lot that needed to be discussed and celebrated or criticized, depending on what team you're talking about. So I guess it's nominee time then. Yeah. For those of you that are new to this, we kind of conclude each of our round recaps the same. We go over the Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week nominees, followed by the main character. So let's start with Mark of the Week. Your round nine winner was correctly awarded to Patrick Parnell for his hanger over Jack Higgins. Your round 10 nominees, you've got Jack Revolt over Brandon Zirk Thatcher. You've got a juggling Joe Danaher mark over Sam Collins, although Collins had kind of already given up his hide on the play. Which still did mark. And you got Ash Johnson on Mark Pittenett's shoulder, really? Winner. Yeah, Johnson's your winner here. They were they were all cool. Johnson's the one that, like, you see it in real time, you go, whoa! I, I don't know if that's like a top three on Brownlinite, but it's a good one. It could be top three as it stands, or nah. I Actually, I think I have a top three in mind, even though one of them didn't win for the round. I've got two from Harry Himmelberg, because he got the one from round one where he just stood on Brody Smith, then the one against Hawthorne before taking the game winner, and then maybe Parnell? Yeah, I think we could still see a couple more really good ones. It's, it's going to be really hard to crack What's already our top three for goal of the year, we think? I think we could have seen the top three this round. So, you know what? Let me just go over the two that shouldn't win first. Well, first, why did you mention who won last round? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. Bobby Hill with that tough angle roller. It was a 73-degree kick from 27 meters out. Steel side bottom and Jack Crisp kept the play alive on the boundary, and then Bobby finished the job. I think that was the opening goal for that one as well. So he's had a knack for opening goals as of late. The nominees for this round, you know what I'm going to rank these? Third, Zach Bailey. He took the ball off the front of the pack, wheeled around. He thought about handballing, but instead decided, nah, I'll make Darcy McPherson look silly, which a lot of people do. McPherson kind of got beaten twice on that play. Second, I'd say, was Shane Bolton with a really deep right pocket roller. That was the 79-degree one that I was mentioning earlier. That was set up by Dustin Martin, forcing a turnover from Kyle Langford, by the way. Paul Curtis should win this and could crack the top three. I still think your top three are Charlie Cameron, Will Ashcroft, and Brody Majacek, but you could you could make a case for for this one. I could see Curtis being taken over Cameron, honestly, because I don't think Majacek's going to be taken out of there or Ashcroft. 
So Curtis took a ball on the ground after the ball was knocked free by 76th interchange Liam Shields. So he got up, shrugged off Robbie Fox and Nick Blakey before hitting a tough angle kick from the left pocket. I didn't realize how sharp it was. It was a 68 degree angle from 30 meters down. He kicked it through on the full. So a good finish as well as a great setup. Your main character for this round, our round nine winner was Luke Jackson for kicking three goals and getting his pants pulled down for a cheeky finish. Your winner for round 10, despite all of the theatrics at Dreamtime, has to be the interchange breach or just the number 76. Ends up getting the first pick because of it. I want somebody to present Harley Reed with a number 76 jumper. That's going to just about do it for this one. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe sleeping next to me and on Instagram at CatNameGrian. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01 and thanks. Hold up, hold up, hold up. What now? Damien Hardwick is quitting tomorrow. This came out about 45 minutes ago. What? Yep. Sounds like he's burned out. Benjamin, you're getting this in real time. I had just pulled up Instagram and saw a thing about it. Yeah, this is this is happening according to Tom Morris. There is a mandatory meeting for Richmond staff tomorrow morning. This this is happening. Wow, for one of the most accomplished coaches of this era of footy to step away is pretty remarkable. I don't, I don't really know what to make of this. They started off the season slow. They put on better performances these past couple weeks, but they couldn't ever get those close results. So maybe a fresh face will help with that. Couple of great responses on Twitter so far. Uh, Shay Maxi guy on Twitter asking, "What does this mean for the legacy of Hugo Ralph Smith?" I meant to ask about what the Eaton Wall game is going to do to affect LeBron's legacy, and I forgot. Also, Queensland Football Club is really pushing David Teague to Richmond. Isn't he one of their assistants? Uh, yeah, he is. As is Ben Rutten. Well, they've got they've got options in house, but wow, yeah, this this is a wow. Another of these weirdly timed mid-season coaching changes that it's like one of those things I've I've said before. You know, like when coaching changes happen, it's been such weird timing. Like if this had happened after last season, would have just been like okay. But for it to happen mid-season is so weird. And that's how we're ending this episode. So, yeah, um, maybe episode 100 will come sooner than the uh, round preview. Maybe the round preview will just start with the uh, hardwood stuff. But, yeah, we're reacting to this in, in just about real time. Yeah, I mean, all the best to Dima and his family. I really want him in media as much as possible because he's such a funny interview, so... Hopefully, after he takes the time he needs away from the game, he'll jump in in that respect. Well, now he's got the time to smoke those joints to relax, I guess. Remember the pregame interview before the game against the Swans? That was fantastic. Wow. Um, yeah, we're just going we're, we're gonna to leave you on that. Yeah, that's a lot for me to process as I start to edit this episode. So take care, everybody.